Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, thanks, David, for such a um, warm uh, welcome, and, and you all for the same. It's a real pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you about something fairly dear to, to my heart, which is the notion of sharing the knowledge, the information sharing and providing access to the work we do in the academic community, not only to others in the academic community, but beyond to those in the society that we typically conceive of the academic community serving in the many ways that it does. Um, I'm going to say I a few times. I think in my presentation, when I say I, I, I really mean we. I'll try to say we as much as possible because I'm talking about the work of a larger group, some of which... David has already mentioned, groups like the Canadian Social Knowledge Institute or CSKI, ETCL, the Electronic Textual Cultures Lab, Inc., or the Implementing New Knowledge Environments Partnership, uh, and DHSI, the Digital Humanities Summer Institute groups. And also, uh, on this presentation in particular, working with my colleagues Elisa Arbuckle, Lindsay Cedar, and Randa Al-Khatib. Um, all members of the Electronic Textual Cultures Lab, dedicated as I am to the sort of work that uh, I have the pleasure of speaking with you about tonight. My title, Beyond Open Access, is about potentially activating the potential of public knowledge, originating in academic sphere, maybe, originating in public sphere, maybe, but ultimately coming together in valuable and meaningful ways. The sorts of questions that people typically think about in the context I'm speaking are like these. What is a citizen scholar or citizen scientist? What kind of scholarly research can capture the attention of the general public and how can we optimize public engagement of it? At the same time, those in the general public think, how can we engage those scholars who are doing research in areas that we're interested in and keep their attention? Ask questions like, what's the role of the digital humanities, about which I'll say more in just a moment, What's the role of DH, uh, and, and how has it become so relevant in various academic contexts in recent decades globally? Towards this end, uh, my talk introduces the notion of open social scholarship in a particular way, and um, it's not a novel we're reading, so I'm going to get to the end right away. It's this, open social scholarship. We believe that open social scholarship involves creating and disseminating research and research-related technologies to a broad audience of specialists, but beyond specialists, into active non-specialists as well, general, sorry, members of the general public. We also believe that in doing so in ways that are accessible and significant for all involved. Now, it has conceptual roots, and those roots are largely from open access movement and open scholarship movement. They're from the Digital Humanities Methodological Commons and communities of, Community of Practice, which I'll talk about in a moment as well. They mimic, map, augment, and extend current online practices, practices that you and I, members of this room, might engage in, but practices that are just emerging now and beyond, not yet part of our smartphone app engagement culture, but may well be soon. And not to find a point, um, it's grown from roots in public-facing citizen scholarship. That is the sort of knowledge production and conveyance that we might do in knowledge environments like universities, but focusing not only on what happens in the university and others in the university as audience, but looking beyond, public-facing, facing an engaged and interested community beyond the academic I'll be speaking predominantly academically with a focus on pertinent contexts, enabling concepts, and ultimately actions that come from these contexts and concepts. But throughout, though, I'd, I'd like to ask you if, if you feel this is more advantageous, especially as I talk through academic manifestations of things, you might readily think about the sorts of instances we encounter daily, much of the time without thinking, that present us with social knowledge environments, environments where Experts and non-experts participate alike. Um, think of what is done on platforms like Wikipedia or any other of the Wikimedia suite. 
Think of the type of interaction one has there, not only as a consumer of information, but as a potential producer of information, a potential engager of information involved in the processes that shape it, that, that are responsible for its presentation front and center when you see it on the screen, and maybe click a button and augment something, add something that you know as an expert, add something that you know based on experience, add something that ultimately contributes to the core sum of what's available there. Wikipedia is the typical go-to example for this sort of thing, but there are many others you could take a look at. So I would also ask you to keep in, in the back of your mind some of these others. Open online discussion forums. I don't know if any of us participate in them, but they are the foundation for a lot of the sort of work that people think of in this area now. Blogs. Things that go on on Twitter and Facebook. Not just fake news. Things beyond that. Things that come from that same knowledge sharing accurate knowledge-sharing impulse that, that has typified the communities that are interested in open social scholarship. Uh, think of elements of podcasting, academic to non-academic audiences, or any other combination of those two and beyond. Think even of some types of video game interactions where knowledge is shared through a process not only of structuring a game in an educational or knowledge-sharing context, but also bringing people together to work through a game environment, especially at large scale, work through a game environment towards value knowledge-oriented, valuable knowledge-oriented tasks. Even some form of fan fiction work in this way and beyond. There are ready examples that may come readily to mind, even though I'm going to talk largely around them than about them specifically. My talk will fall roughly into three categories, context for this work, concepts pertinent to this work and moving this work forward, and ultimately some actions that we've taken at the Canadian Social Knowledge Institute um, in Canada with a worldwide, um, uh, a front-facing world worldwide sphere, hoping to enlarge our own partner network. And our partner network is thinking very much about these sorts of issues and engaging constituency well beyond. So I'll begin talking about context. And here first, I'll talk about the digital humanities and its methodological commons. I'll talk about communities of practice. And I'll talk specifically about how these lead to impacts that we have in social and scholarly production, sorry, and scholarly engagement. Let's begin first with the digital humanities. Um, this is a rendering of the methodological commons felt to sit at the, the heart of the digital humanities um, from about 16 years ago by Willard McCarty and Harold Short of King's College London. Um, what's trying to be captured here is the core notion of the digital humanities, which imagines the humanities, let's say here, uh, if you will, a very vibrant, vibrant group of disciplines, subdisciplines, and interdisciplines, all focused to, to crudely, I think, uh, uh, um, crudely summarized, all focused on the notion of human experience over time as it's represented in those remains that we have to understand what we as a culture have as humans over time understood and felt worthy enough to document and convey. So the humanities here, how we do the humanities changes quite regularly. What's important in the humanities changes quite regularly. It's not a solid fixed body, but rather a very vibrant, dynamic, moving body. On the other side, imagine the computational sciences and computation generally. We know in computation, the world moves quickly. We take that for granted, I think, as a society. There are always advances in technology. There are always new, new bits of hardware, new software updates, new tools, new techniques that are modeled computationally. Think of these two things, both of them moving, and imagine how they might converge, where, say, some of the tools and technologies of the computational world come to bear on humanistic concerns. It could be something as simple as, uh, as video streaming a play. It could be something much more complex, though, like analyzing, for example, political speeches over time and understanding how one political candidate could him or herself be mimicking, be reflecting, be paying homage to others. And imagine that in many different other contexts too, beyond textual, beyond performance. Think of visual, audio, arts. Think of the sorts of points of intersection you can have between those two. And when we think of digital humanities, we tend to be thinking fairly broadly in that way at the same time as we're imagining them moving constantly. 
in sync sometimes, sometimes not in sync. But ultimately, what DH does is look at that intersection point between what's going on in computational world as it informs the humanities and what is informed in the humanities by computational method, process, technique. The methodological commons diagram tries to capture that very, very dynamic, lively interaction. You see ways or clouds of knowing at the bottom, philosophy, computer science, linguistics, sociology. You see types of, uh, of things that are done in law and historical studies and performance studies up at the top. And you see them meeting in the center, a center where you have types of data that are being manipulated, narrative text, tabular alphanumerics, numbers, music, images. And you see them in the context of the methodological uh, commons where those data come in contact with the tools and techniques and computationally facilitated processes that, that ultimately allow us to work with them. The methodological commons in the digital humanities the methodological commons being that confluence of data and tools that we work on the data with, are largely predicated on three things. One is that the data itself can be modeled. So if I'm reading a work like Moby Dick, um, my assumption if I were to take a computational, a digital humanities or a computational approach to that humanities material would be that Moby Dick can itself be digitized be made computationally tractable. And in fact, one of the great movements of the past 20 years in the digital humanities, working with partners in many communities, has been to digitize humanistic information, textual corpora, image databanks, other types of data that are pertinent to that. So with that process of data modeling done, bringing the data into computationally tractable form, we then look to enact via tools and techniques, via apps, processes of analysis upon them. It can be something as simple as a word search. In one case, it could be something much more complex, uh, working with big data. It can be authorship identification. It can be searching across large, large bodies of picture-based information for certain characteristics. In fine art, perhaps a hand in a certain location that denotes something of significance, and so on. So we've got our data, we've got our tools in the methodological commons, in the digital humanities. The third very important element of that, though, is the interaction and the communication and the dissemination that takes place around all that. So if I'm functioning as a traditional academic, and I do function as a traditional academic a fair bit, and I find through the data which I have made computationally tractable, I've scanned it, I've presented it in appropriately encoded format, and then I apply tools to that that point out something very significant to me. If I find something of significance, as an expert in the area, I often try to say something about it. I publish a conference paper. I let my colleagues know. I publish an article. Perhaps I publish a book. I'm communicating, if you will, about that in those contexts. I'm interacting. I'm disseminating. Sometimes even I tweet. The trends we're noticing there around these three areas uh, are here. Largely increase and significant increase. Number one, in access to data in widely usable formats. Number two, increase in familiarity amongst not only experts, but non-experts or experts in training and the general public in the sorts of analytical processing, the tools and techniques that we use as part of this work across disciplines and across data sets that might be of interest typically to maybe only one discipline or others. These things tend to be increasing. Increased communication as well is something that we're noticing among those who are working in these data sets, working in the community or communities that exist around that data. It seems always to be broadening the way in which information is presented to us. Um, someone noted not that long ago that particularly in the humanities and in Renaissance studies, where, where David was kind enough to mention that I spend a fair bit of my time working, we've had so many overlapping content, so much overlapping content in our databases that we're finding that those who do literary studies are reading sometimes just as much about pertinent art history and history in the area as those who might be doing history of medical science are reading about literary studies and possibly art history and depiction of the human form. 
This last point, communication among those working in the community, existing around that data, it's broadening, means we get to know more about each other and the work that we're doing and its value, not only idealistically, but its value possibly even to the work that we're doing ourselves. What does this mean? Well, if there's more data available and there are faster tools to interact with that data, we could probably do the same thing more quickly. And as long as we're doing something that's good and right and justified within the tradition we're working, that can be a good thing. Um, if we're a carpenter, to use an analogy, um, if we have a better hammer, we can probably hit more nails. We just have to hope that the nails are the ones we want to hit. Secondly, it leads to an advanced workflow acceleration. So I'll go back to talking about text now for a moment here. If I happen to be working with a large text like Moby Dick, which is not impossible to read, impossible to read quickly and thoroughly though, if I'm working with a text of something like Moby Dick and I want to understand how a certain word plays out thematically across that text, well, I can read the text again, which would be wonderful and a pleasure, no doubt. That could take me a few days. Or I could do a word search and that could take me a few seconds. What if I want to read all of Western literature? That could take me several lifetimes, which I don't have, or I could bring all that material together in a data model format using tools that would be able to somehow interact and engage with that. And I could do that all in maybe not a few seconds, maybe a few minutes. And I could understand that theme or those themes in Moby Dick in a larger context of Western literature. What about all of literature across all languages? The themes apparently that we engage in the humanities are those that interest us as humans and have interested us as human over time, as humans over time. They're universal. Would there be themes in Melville's Moby Dick that might speak to people in other parts of the world from other traditions? Well, if they speak to the human condition and the human soul, quite likely. Wouldn't that be good to know? We can, using this type of process, begin to ask larger questions and carry them out that way simply because we can do more of the same thing across much larger bodies of material. This is important. At the same time, thinking of communication, given the sort of technologies, communicative technologies we have access to, we can start, if we're interested in those themes and we want to convey them beyond specialized academic audiences, we can start speaking to larger groups. We have a larger reach for our work and its engagement. We can speak to communities, not only those who might read a specialized academic journal that has a print run of something like a thousand and reaches every single person who might be interested in that specialized thing in one's field, but we can, using computer technology, distribute much broadly. I'm not saying anything revolutionary here, but maybe instead of a community of a hundred, we get a thousand, two thousand dedicated readers. Maybe we get a hundred thousand on something that's particularly topical, particularly engaging. These are important things. These things come out of the cornerstones of the digital humanities and its methodological commons. Now situate that commons and that understanding of textual, sorry, technical and humanistic interaction and confluence. Situate that in a community of those who share the same humanistic values, the same computational technical predispositions. Maybe they use the same tools. Maybe they encode their texts the same way so they can be interoperable, read and used interchangeably or in conjunction with one another, where they have a common set of values and a commitment to working together. That would make the digital humanities, and I'm speaking of also a community of practice, where there are shared values, shared tools and techniques, shared methods and modes of engagement, and shared ends. In this context, we see uh, here at NYU Abu Dhabi, but well, well beyond, we see the positive, positive results of that. Things like collaborative networks, most of them technologically facilitated. We see collaborative shared infrastructures like they do in the hard sciences, where someone in Abu Dhabi can use infrastructure that's at my home institution at the University of Victoria towards the ends I've discussed, or I could do the opposite, or we could all converge on CERN virtually to run something much larger than we might be able to run on our home computers. The point of impact here 
on knowledge generally, I think is a very, very important one. And, and to move into that, um, just as slowly as I've moved into everything so far, uh, I, I want to use the words of uh, uh, Northrop Fry, literary studies professor, uh, most prominent in, in the middle part and the later part of the last uh, century. Northrop Fry was very interested in studies of knowledge, studies of knowledge communities over time. And he presented a keynote address to one of the first meetings of the joint international group of digital humanists. Um, his, his talk title was Literary and Mechanical Models, where he was looking at the way in which literary studies in particular manifest in models of knowledge accumulation and conveyance. There he was very interested in the model of the assembly line. And he says that most of the knowledge production work that took place in the field he was most familiar with in the last century, specifically around the 1930s, was the model of the assembly line, where each scholar would do his or her bit uh, of work in their expert areas. They would publish it, they would disseminate it in that way, and then they would, in essence, put it back on that assembly belt where it would come together. And in coming together, it would eventually become part of something much larger at the end of that process. The end of that process wasn't the assembly of something like a, a car or something finite like that, but it was an indefinitely expanding body of knowledge. That knowledge needed a place in his model, and the model that most accept uh, of that time needed a place to reside, to be accessed, to be interrogated and engaged. And that model was almost exclusively the research library. Not that long after Northrop Fry said those words in 1989, published two years later, William Winder from the University of British Columbia explored them a little bit further and asked, asked himself what the role of the scholar was today, what the digital humanist could bring to that Neuwissenschaft model of academic production that Fry was talking about from some 50 years before Winder. Just as the internet was beginning to be a thing, just as the internet was something that we could imagine serving not only um, uh, highly specialized military and scientific research needs, but also humanistic research needs and the needs of the general public. He says, amassing knowledge is relatively simple, as our towering research libraries demonstrate. Organizing, retrieving, and understanding the interrelations of information is another matter, and one whose mastery is not automatic as our shaky understanding sometimes reveals. He encourages us, Winder does, to think a little bit beyond that. And he says we should think of the current period in which we, we live, then the nascent internet age, and, and the fact that it brought with it issues of retrieval and reuse. And our challenge, he says, today, meaning the mid-90s, uh, is to be just as efficient at retrieving information as we are at producing, sorry, as we are at stockpiling it. He also goes on to discuss how we engage it. And perhaps in that thinking too, given that he's speaking to an audience that's not only those who go to a research library, but also those who are on the internet, exactly who we are when we talk about us in this shared context. What we're noticing in the community of practice, these converging trends as they relate to knowledge, is this. What we can expect is this. Building on a greater increase already of data, we can expect more of it. Building on an influx of new tools and their adoption by wider bodies in the general public, we can expect that to grow as well. We can expect our computational power and facility to grow as well. Day by day, certainly generation by generation. We can anticipate as well further growth in this third of the three areas, which I think is especially important. Communication strategies that will likely lead somehow to some type of increasingly technologically facilitated interaction and public participation in the data we produce, in the tools that we put there, in <clears throat> the communities that we engage in this way. This has the potential, especially for those working in academic communities, to change things quite radically. The questions that we might be asking scholarship, uh, in our scholarship, of scholarship, of our data, Maybe one thing, if we're asking them for the perspective of expertise, what if we're asking or listening to a general public that we're communicating with via social means? Will those questions be as important to members of the general public, as engaged as they may be, as they are to us, as, let's say, experts in a field? 
Some very important differences could lie there in all disciplines about what is important to investigate. What in the service of society does academic research feel it can and should and take the time to engage? We can find, I think, some pretty notable points uh, of impact that can be anticipated here. The way in which scholarship is produced, the scale of scholarship, access to scholarship and engagement of it, and beyond. Discussion around these points involves many concerns beyond what could be defined solely now in a very conservative and traditional way as academic work. This is very exciting. I'd like to talk a bit about concept now. Building on that context, we have been meeting now as a research group for a number of years to work to understand where that unknown future is, the confluence of more data yet, the confluence of that with increased access to tools, more powerful computers. And in that context, what happens when you bring that to an educated, engaged populace? who are interested in being a part of the work, not necessarily as consumers of it, but as those who are impacted by it and perhaps even involved with it. My group at the Electronic Textual Cultures Lab has had the pleasure for the past few years of doing what we've been calling scoping activities, trying to render a lot of these concerns in the types of academic contexts where people might most readily engage it, environmental scans and and beyond. Um, Our products so far in this vein Um, have been three substantial bibliographies, one on social knowledge creation, which itself combined three smaller exploratory works that we did. Another is an annotated bibliography on social knowledge creation and soon to be published open scholarship, open social scholarship annotated bibliography and two book volumes where we've invited academics who are thinking about these issues to come together and articulate what they feel pertinent examples are, or exemplary instances that point us towards next steps, best practices. Uh, The first of the two is Social Knowledge Creation in the Humanities, published in 2017, led by uh, Lisa Arbuckle, Aaron Morrow, and Daniel Powell. And the second of these uh, volumes coming out this year, led by Aaron Morrow. In this work and beyond, we've tried to, to understand the sorts of traditions that lead us to this place in a way that we can talk not only to those in specialist academic disciplines, but also engage members of the public beyond. Here's what we're finding. I'll share with you a a couple of key ideas and then uh, discuss very briefly some central topics and themes that we find coming from them. One key idea is that open knowledge is a historically based value system with a long tradition. We tend to think when those who are specialists talk of of things like open access and open source, which I'll say more about in a moment, um, that it is something that's new. In fact, our words for for talking about that are new, but the notions that lie at the core of it have a very strong, strong historical precedent. And those who are expert in the area and know best here think in terms of thematic points of uh, exploration and topics, they think of how Historically, knowledge has circulated openly over time. They think of examples like the development of the public library system and its importance as a cornerstone of many educated societies. They think of the movement in formal scholarly communication from initially letters from one scientist, often an amateur scientist, to another scientist, often amateur as well, as a means of sharing knowledge into what we now know as formal academic journals. Um, They think of a rise in a philosophy of public access to knowledge and the importance that begins not yesterday, not five years ago, not with any community necessarily that we might have direct experience with, but begins in the early 17th century with roots even deeper than that. The concept concept of open access, where materials are freely available to those who have access to it, those who have the technological facilitation or the ability to, to, to access the information. The key idea here is that research output should be accessible to everyone. And by everyone, there's always a limiting factor, everyone who has access to a computer and the internet typically, but everyone who does have that sort of access. Central topics here have been theoretical investigations of what open access is and can mean and means. My, my favorite sort of exploration of that has been the, the motto that came from a US-based 
uh, librarian group engaging open access, where they were commenting on the fact that many people felt open access was free. and In fact, it is in many ways. Someone said at one point, well, what do you mean by free? And the response was, free as in puppies, not as in beer. One comes, anyways, that's a, that's a, it's a bad joke, but one comes with responsibility more than the other. Uh, open access is free as in, and the responsibility of having a puppy. Open access to knowledge being a human right. That is, if academic knowledge production is in the service of society, and society is a reflection of humanity and the human rights uh, that, that we as humans have, the rights we as humans have, that the two are closely tied together. It explores the role of scholars and libraries in the open access movement over time, recently mostly in this case. It looks at practical paths and best practices for implementation of open access in a competitive system, a capitalist system, a system where ownership perhaps is more important than sharing. And it also takes a look at perceptions of open access publishing um, in the context of scholarly pragmatics, where where those who are professional knowledge producers in institutional environments often do have, have certain targets that they need to reach, certain things that they need to report on and beyond. Open source relates to open access in the same way, free as in puppies, not as in beer. It's an umbrella term for the practice of openly sharing, modifying, and reusing software code coming from the computational software develop, uh, development industry. Its central topics, themes, and points of exploration look at the open source movement historically as a reflection of human culture over time and its manifestation in free software. It looks at the development of open source software generally and its history. It understands the potential of collaboration of this approach in software development, working together rather than competitively, sharing and not having to redo things versus um, having to redo things because you don't have a culture of sharing information, expertise, and knowledge. And connected to that, uh, um, an area least of my expertise, but a very important one, internet policy and privacy debates in this sphere and others. Open data operates in similar sorts of ways. Um, in scientific research communities, reproducible results has been a very valid burden that one has to meet. In any data culture, reproducible results means providing data that can help reproduce those results. This is an idea that's been around for a very long time and is gaining steam in, in many of the, the contexts that, uh, that those of us working in digital humanities feel as well. Open knowledge and its technological facilitation is another key concept here, where the notion of using tools and platforms to facilitate open practices itself is put under scrutiny, a self-examination, if you will looking at how open source, open access, open data, and collaborative research all intertwine in useful ways. Explorations here focus on and how one can best enable this sort of technology, looking at how this type of interrelation can serve the needs of, um, of pursuits associated with social justice and well beyond, and also studying successful movements or influential open knowledge projects and initiatives that we can learn from as we imagine situating our own efforts further. Continuing on this, and I only have one or two more examples, alternative publishing methods is another area that has seen considerable engagement here as well. And the key idea is that different discourses and experimentations exploring alternative ways of publishing and engaging are yielding positive results as well. The movement from print to online digital media was only the first of, of many, many steps towards being able to reach larger audiences with our expert knowledge and engage them to have possibly a two-way discussion about them. We talk about outreach there and reach generally. We talk about open access and its publication mechanisms. We also talk about alternative systems of peer review or the qualitative assurance mechanism that can bring a larger communities, imprimatur, if you will, sense of value uh, to materials that are appearing and published in these forms. The concept of citizen science is another very important one that comes up here as well. The citizen scientist or citizen scholar being key to research initiatives that are led outside of academic or, or formal research institutional contexts. 
There are some brilliant and large examples of them. Uh, one of them is the Oxford English Dictionary, but there are many more we could talk about there. Um, there's been noted by those who are much more expert in these areas than me, a recent increase in these types of projects manifest on the sort of online platforms we have available to us and using that confluence of increasingly available data, software tools, and access to that wider audience that's available for these things. There have been right debates, specifically around qualitative assurance processes here, that question data reliability when the data is produced by non-expert audiences and used then for purposes that require, uh, it's felt, certain types of, of expert processes to be enacted. Specifically, in this context, looking at crowdsourcing practices and gamification, particularly here also looking at the role of the citizen scientist or the citizen scholar, uh, his or her place in educating a general public or conveying their enthusiasm and excitement about something to a larger audience than most traditional academic means would ever reach. This last point focuses uh, particularly on the notion of knowledge mobilization, that is taking knowledge from the expert sphere and moving it into other expert spheres and spheres beyond. Looking at that gap between the expert cultures and the non-expert cultures and ultimately imagining how under the heading of community engagement, how to create and maintain partnerships between those at institutions of higher learning and professional reading environments into community groups, into engaged individual and other group members uh, <clears throat> of, of society at large. I've mapped for you a number of examples at a time I know when people are hungry, I'm speaking in the dinner hour. Um, I'll cut to the chase. We spent a lot of time trying to explore these issues in ways that an academic audience would be able to understand, working in traditional ways to provide resources, arguments, and, uh, and valid ways of pursuing this concept of open social scholarship. We've been doing this across the past several years with the meetings of our Inc. partnership towards a conceptual evolution that brings us to a shared consensus of what open social scholarship should be which is the foundation for our Canadian Social Knowledge Institute. We had a number of targeted meetings of this group across five conferences now. Um, we've manifest 30 partners and associates. We've uh, worked with 42 researchers and consultants and a total of about another 100 other members in our community, graduate student research assistants, postdoctoral fellows, uh, representatives of funding agencies and beyond. And once we had a reasonable conception of all those things I just mentioned, once we had a regional conception, reasonable conception of what open social scholarship could be, we did another academic thing beyond the environmental scan. We decided we would do a, a targeted theoretical intervention. And what I mean by that is we wanted to understand how what we were learning could change some theoretical approaches to the topic we were hoping to engage. So, we looked at the scholarly edition, something from literary and historical studies predominantly, where one takes a historical text, and in taking that historical text, presents it to a modern audience. It's a work of scholarship, uh, a work of scholarship that involves not only reproducing and remediating the text, um, but at the same time providing the necessary intellectual, social, cultural contexts to that text, sometimes via an introduction, often via an introduction, but also often via interlineal notes. If anyone works with scholarly editions of materials, you'll recognize the difference immediately between that and the sort of thing we read for pleasure because there are notes explaining everything, including different versions of text that may be encountered there. It's a unique scholarly artifact and a very valuable one, the cornerstone of many disciplines. So we thought we would take a look at that from the perspective of what we were learning about social manifestations of scholarship that had something to do with or potentially something to do with the scholarly edition. We published an article uh, in a journal. The article was called Towards Modeling the Social Edition, an Approach to Understanding the Electronic Scholarly Edition in the Context of New and Emerging Social Media. With that done, and having discussed in a very formal way through conference presentations around those ideas, through the sorts of mechanisms we have for qualitative assurance in the academic community, that is peer review, which we thankfully survived, but we got some wonderful, very helpful comments along the way. 
we then decided we would take our theory and implement it in this um, by doing some experimental experiential research where we made a scholarly edition, this artifact that we were theorizing and then intervening in the theorizing of or disrupting the theory of. We, we made this thing, which we did not with the publication of a formal academic press initially, not by putting it between two book covers, but instead using the Wikibooks platform to launch a formal scholarly edition with a board of experts in the field to ensure that our quality was appropriate, following processes, underlying processes that we knew would render our text appropriate, the reading text uh, that would provide appropriate, responsible, contextual, social, intellectual history that this particular type of artifact always does or should do in the best cases. And we put it up online thinking there might be 30 or 40 people in the world who would be interested in this. And there were, thankfully, 30 or 40 people in the world interested in this. And then suddenly there were more. Let me tell you a bit about this particular instance here. The work we put online is called the Devonshire Manuscript. It's British Library Additional Manuscript 17492. It's a very small artifact, like a trade paperback size, that sits in the manuscript student's room at the British Library in London. It doesn't look terribly remarkable. There are 20-some hands or 20-some people who have left evidence of their participation in it, 20-some hands um, who, who collaborated on putting this thing together. Um, most of the hands are untrained. That is, most of the people who participated in this did not have formal education and training in handwriting. It's a manuscript that comes from the 1530s. It's noteworthy for a couple reasons. Um, one of them is that it was given as a wedding gift to <clears throat> one of Henry VIII's children. And it was given not full and complete, as most gifts are. It was given completely blank. The idea being that that work would be filled up by those who engaged it. Second important thing about it um, was that <clears throat> it eventually became, over time, as it went through various passages, as it went from Henry VIII's court to Queen Anne Boleyn's court, as those courts moved around, as people in those courts got imprisoned and then released, and then others got imprisoned and released, the manuscript went around with all these people variously, sometimes conveying letters, sometimes conveying poetry or poetic letters, epistolary verse. It filled, and it filled and documented elements of the lives of this interesting community. This community wasn't men only. It was a community, and in fact, the first example we have of men and women writing together in the English tradition in a sustained way. So in addition to being a, a book that belonged to someone noble, given as a gift to be filled, it was filled by noble people who were male and female and treated it as a space to document their human concerns. Parts of it are very touching and compelling, if you like poetry. My, my son says to me, maybe, maybe not, he prefers lyrics. Um, I tell him these are lyrics, so we don't have to get into that debate. Um, it's one that we have. These are, in fact, lyrics uh, intended to be set to music, many of them at the time, uh, but appearing in text only. So this document goes back and forth between those who are in the early Tudor court. We treat the document in a traditional academic way, a responsible academic way, except that we follow the notion of our theoretical intervention into this tradition, and we put it online. We put it online in Wikibooks. People use Wikibooks and Wikipedia, not a specialized thing that we spent two years and $50 million developing, but just something that the general public used. And then someone else who was interested in the story came across this and made it a miniseries. Did anyone watch the Tudors miniseries? Okay, a couple of heads nodding. Well, this came out at about the same time. And those members of what we might call the engaged public, engaged citizenry, those people who had most prospect of being citizen scholars, were watching the show, sure. But the ones who were most actively engaged were the ones who might have watched it with their laptop open with their smartphone there. And they wanted to learn more about one of the characters, Mary Howard. They wanted to learn more about Anne Boleyn. They wondered why Henry's relationship with another character was the way it was. So they entered search terms into Google about that. Where do you think they ended up? It's a big surprise for many. 
um, they got something different than, than they wanted, I'm sure, initially. And many clicked away. Some stayed. And some came back. And came back again. And some read some more. This isn't an easy text. You know, we've transcribed it so you can read the characters, but the spelling is unfixed, as most early Renaissance spelling is. So it's not the normal English spelling we're used to today. You have to work at it. We had people not only read, and we can track elements of reading, but we had them go beyond reading. Some of them even clicked on the button that allows you to update the page. We had the manuscript facsimile images right there. One or two people came and corrected the transcription. And people who transcribe make errors. Everyone will tell you that. We're ashamed of them. We wish it could be better. We always hope they're corrected. Well, in this case, other people corrected them for us, which was brilliant. We missed a reference to Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn um, in, in a poem that talks about an area called Goodwin Sands. It's a poem by Thomas Wyatt, who was sent to prison for an alleged affair with, uh, with Henry uh, VIII's Anne Boleyn at her trial before her execution. And he says of the two of them, I would they were in Goodwin Sands. Um, something that escaped us literary scholars as a reference completely, except that it seemed to have some sort of topical importance. One of our readers, perhaps drawn in by the tutors, perhaps beyond, happened to know something about Goodwin Sands. Goodwin Sands was a sandbank that existed around that time, uh, the time the poem was written, that was revealed much more than it is today um, at low tide, but was dangerously below the surface of the water when the water was up. Ships ran aground there, and it was located within sight of one of, the, one of the Boleyn cottages where it's felt that Henry and Anne Boleyn had their premarital connections. This provided not by an expert that we're aware of, this provided by someone in the community who had knowledge that was pertinent to us. We're very grateful for that, and I probably spent too much time talking about it, but it's that sort of thing that provides from at least an academic perspective a very significant type of public participation. And we hope from the public perspective, at least, those people from the Tudor's miniseries audience who came and took a look at our manuscript because Google brought them there in numbers exponentially larger than our academic audience was ever imagined to be. We hope we did them a good sort of service too. This sort of interaction, our experimentation, our theoretical intervention, our looking at key issues, our even before that, doing environmental scans to understand the traditions that come into play in this context led us to a functional definition which we managed across several years of discussion with a collaborative, if you will, community of practice research group that was interested in these issues, open source, open access, open scholarship generally. And this is how we got to our definition of open social scholarship which involves creating and disseminating research and research-related technologies to a broad audience of specialists and active non-specialists in ways that are accessible and significant. Drawing on the roots I've already mentioned before, but ultimately manifesting in these ways too. Open social scholarship includes developing, sharing, and implementing research in ways that consider the needs and interests of both academic specialists and communities beyond academia to facilitate that type of interaction. OSS includes providing opportunities to co-create expert and expert, expert and perhaps someone training to be expert, expert and those and general public to co-create, to interact with and experience openly available cultural data. It includes exploring, developing, and making tools and technologies under open licenses to promote wide access, to promote education, to promote use, and to promote their repurposing so that they can be better in a free, collaborative, and sustained environment. And includes enabling productive dialogue between academics and non-academics through these means by opening, by making more social the type of work that we do together. And David, if I have about seven or eight more minutes, would that be okay? Something like that. That sounds good. I'd now like to talk just a little bit about how this action as manifest for us at the Canadian Social Knowledge Institute, where the rubber hits the road, if you will, for us. And here we focused on an action-oriented agenda, following consensus around this definition of this 
this emerging, recently involved term, open social scholarship, looking at making it possible, tangible, and ultimately understanding where its future might go as well. The first instance here was our shared agreement that we needed to establish some sort of body to ensure that we kept talking about these important issues, a body that would have as its role bringing together the groups that have been involved in the past in this work, bringing together their existing initiatives and imagining ways of engaging in new initiatives. Sorts of activities we engage in at the Canadian Social Knowledge Institute involve awareness raising of these issues, knowledge mobilization, training, public engagement, scholarly communication, pertinent research and development on local, national, and international levels. We're working together with a number of individuals here, but ultimately a number of partner groups, and most of those related to knowledge production and conveyance in specialized and non-specialized circles in, in Canada, the national level, as well as those beyond. One of the key things we realized was necessary here was training. And so we partnered with our own Digital Humanities Summer Institute, an annual gathering of some 800 to 900 of those in the digital humanities community of practice. And we set up a stream of courses that provided skills for those interested in learning more about openness in academic and in research contexts. Courses like digital public humanities, courses like accessibility in digital environments. I'm going to miss a few here just for sake of time. Courses like feminist digital humanities, theoretical, social, and material engagements. Courses <clears throat> like digital publishing in the humanities, digital storytelling, and open access and open social scholarship, and many others. These are just a few with a very small font. In training as well, thinking of awareness raising in particular, we realized there was a lot going on in the policy sphere. Not all academic endeavors interact with regional, national, and international policymaking. But open access, for example, and open source are two that have, and open social scholarship engages those quite readily. So we worked with our team and our larger group uh, at the Canadian Social Knowledge Institute to establish what we call a policy observatory dedicated to understanding those related issues that I walked through briefly before to ensure, number one, that everyone in our community, and it's an open resource, so anyone in any community that has access to the internet and our URL, can take a look at the sorts of things that are happening and policies related to the various things that I've just talked about, that I've been talking about, for information's sake, perhaps for response sake of their own, perhaps to even influence change and move policy forward in areas and in ways that they feel are important and valuable. Our development lead there was Sarah Milligan. Here's an example of what that could look like. Someone interested in digital scholarship can come in, type a keyword, and find an article and a response that's fairly in-depth if you click through and read more about that. You can also read more about open government in French and English. Uh, you can read <clears throat> about responses to government funding platforms as they relate to uh, open scholarship. You can read about the Berlin Declaration. You can read about ORCID as a, a, an identification tool for those connecting researchers and beyond. In addition to this, we wanted a mechanism for honoring and celebrating excellence amongst the community that practices open social scholarship and open scholarship more generally. Not just academic researchers either, those in communities well beyond who have an investment in the sort of work that we're doing together. We've just announced our 2018 awards, and the award winner goes to Juan Alperin, Simon Fraser University. has been involved in many open initiatives and involved in something, well, things like the Public Knowledge Project. If you use open journal systems, you might know this. Public Knowledge Projects, open journal systems. Honoring as well via honorable mention a number of others. We have an emerging award as well. Uh, this year celebrating the, the work of Erin Glass, uh, now at the UC San Diego Library for a work she calls Open Dis, Open Dissertation. Um, our, our website will have more details about this if you're interested, but honoring, celebrating, showing the good examples of this sort of work is a very, very important function, we felt, and so we were participating in this with our institute as well. In terms of other activities we're doing, well, we put our money where our mouth was, specifically as it relates to 
to knowledge coming from the sort of production sphere we have at the institution and making it readily available for others. Partnered with the Canadian Federation for Humanities and Social Sciences, partnered with the University of Victoria Library, our group established the first honorary resident Wikipedian um, in our country. Um, Christian Vandendorp, uh, emeritus scholar from University of Ottawa, was our first recipient. Our second recipient is Constance Crompton, and uh, she participates for, for the, the next year with us. Her last presentation, which then spawned a, a planned, not a, a sudden spontaneous edit-a-thon, was called Curation to Creation, Wikipedia's Contribution to Open Knowledge. We do these events several times a year. We're building a community of those not only on campus but off campus who come together and work regularly in the social knowledge sphere, uh, led by an exemplary practitioner. Um, other activities are our local one in my electronic textual cultures lab. So we have practicums around open knowledge where we invite members of the community, broadly construed, including the academic community, but well beyond as well, to come into our lab and being in our lab. We work with them uh, on knowledge enrichment projects or creation projects that ultimately will be public facing. We have some fantastic examples over the past year and a half of undergraduates, graduates, and members of the general public coming in and sharing in their sphere, not only their enthusiasm for their subject, but sharing what they learn about how to participate in these types of forums with others. Um, the projects have ranged widely, the time frames have ranged widely. Ultimately, though, what has come out of that is either original knowledge or knowledge that was not yet available in original form or in any sort of tractable form in the public sphere. This is led by Rhonda Al-Khatib. One of the things we're working on as well, led by Luis Menises in this vein, another activity where the rubber hits the road, is to understand the correlationship or maybe the value of the correlationship between what people are talking about knowledge-wise in social media, Twitter and Facebook and beyond, and what actually exists in the open access academic corpus. Uh, Luis Menises is working on a social media engine that will ultimately monitor and map conversations going on in social media that seem to have expert inclination. Take that, look against a corpus of open access materials, and then provide further resources for those who want to read more deeply within the openly available corpus. Um, this tool is successfully prototyped and we imagine will be available through Erudi uh, and the Public Knowledge Project within the next year. And lastly, of the examples I give of, of activities we're engaged in, we're, we're trying to understand how more academics, those who would like to be involved in these sorts of initiatives, can not only learn about that. We have a conference every year where they can come. We have training every year where they can come. We're always willing to talk with them. So there are ways of learning and engaging, but we're wondering about how we could reach out even further. How can we help them or encourage them to participate in this sort of open knowledge sharing experience? We're working right now with our partners at Compute Canada, our partners at Canary, uh, partners at the Federation for Social Sciences and Humanities, and the Humanities Commons people from the Modern Language Association and now well beyond on a concept called the Canadian Humanities and Social Science Commons, which in essence is a commons environment where people can share. They can post their, their, their off-prints of articles. They can post other things like that. They can create communities and subgroups and interact. And that is visible for those who wish it to an engaged public. That material becomes part of a shared common corpus for an engaged public. Um, in essence, it makes a lot of but those who decide to join this, possibility of up to 90,000 Canadians working in that particular sphere, it, it makes our group a bit more readily tractable. Google reachable, kind of, but in a controlled environment. Um, a baby step towards perhaps other larger steps later. That's where we're at at the moment. You know, in one way, we're, we're living the dream, in a sense, that we began a number of years ago exploring the initiatives that we discussed, looking at the digital humanities community, looking at what was important about the digital humanities, particularly across the entire community of practice, particularly within the frame of data, tools, and their evolution and ultimate dissemination and engagement via emerging communication strategies. 
what we've learned by the experiments we've done in the communities that have come together as part of those experiments towards these activities that I've just shared with you. It's, um, it's an unknown future from here on in, but I think a brilliant one. That movement towards the realm of the social and the realms that we at the university engage is only going to continue. We've seen it happen in popular culture, particularly American politics, other politics too. We see it happening there. We can see, I think, a very positive convergence if we are engaged in our desire to at least understand what's going on. I think we can see a positive convergence there. And if we're proactive and take positive steps to ensure that we are, as part of our social contract, if you will, with the society we serve as academics and those in civil society and the unwritten contract members of civil society have with each other, I think we're in a good trajectory. Um, I'm over-enthusiastic about this. I talk way too long. I didn't have any good jokes for you, but that doesn't mean I haven't really enjoyed being here. Uh, I have, and I really thank you for coming out in the dinner hour on an evening like tonight to, uh, to, to hear some of what I'm so enthusiastic about. Thank you so much also for the invitation. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.